1: This episode is sponsored by Libro FM. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 125,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of the Book Riot podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter BR3 at checkout. As a bonus, sign up now and you'll get five free audiobooks delivered to you on Bookstore Day, a one-day national party that takes place at bookstores across the country on Saturday, April 27th. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Again, that's Libro.fm and enter code BR3. The number three to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one. Thanks again to Libro FM.
0: This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. That's what it normally is. That's not what it is today. But this is episode three hundred nine. We're recording on Thursday, April twenty fifth, twenty nineteen. The most ideal date, according to William Shatner. I am Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com.
1: Hello. You know, I was writing in my journal this morning. I wrote down April 25th. And I was like, why does this day (laughs) feel significant to me? Like, I feel like April 25th is a thing. It's no one's birthday in my life. Why is this in my brain? And then, of course, as soon as I got on the Internet, I was like, right, it's the ideal date. It's not too hot. It's not too cold.
0: Just a light jacket. You
1: can wear a, light jacket. a Light jacket. For those
0: who don't you know what we're talking about, I don't know. This was a skit on something, and I don't remember. But basically, it's a the sh- the question is: Describe your perfect date. It's supposed to be a dating show, and Shatner responds with April twenty fifth.
1: Isn't it from Miscongeniality? Is that what
0: it is? I don't remember. I, think I just it might know in my. Miss it's like it's totally memefied. It's totally devoid of context. Maybe it's Miscongeniality. <laughs> um, don't don't email us. We'll look it up after the show. If you know it, great. If don't, Google it. You'll find it. Um, but here we are. It's our Moms, Dads, and Grads recommendation show. Thank you guys so much for writing. Um, I got everyone who wrote us by yesterday afternoon in. I'm sorry, there's a few that came in today, but didn't, didn't quite make it. Maybe we'll save them for a future show. But thanks so much for writing. We got some stuff, so let's get into it. But before we do that, let's do a sponsor. The Great Courses Plus. It's, a, it's where there's great courses. And you can learn. We like to learn. We know you do, too. Check out The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming service that gives you the opportunity to learn from bright, passionate experts about almost anything. You can do cooking, painting, zoology. You can do history, like the Roman Empire. You can do sort of MFA stuff, like writing fiction. It's all there. Stuff you want to learn about, chances are they've got something about it. Unlimited access to watch and listen to thousands of lectures Anytime, anywhere. Isn't it funny now that, you know, you're of a certain age? If you're listening to this, I'm guessing you're of a certain age. And that age <laughs> is you're probably out of school. At one point, the idea of voluntarily listening to lectures or watching lectures in your free time, you wouldn't have imagined that's a thing. But it is a thing because what you don't know when you're young and dumb is that learning is cool and learning is fun. And that's not a, that's not a thing you get to do for the rest of your life unless you make time to do it. And you can make time to do it with The Great Courses+. Plus. Talked before about this course. It's called Great Dystopian and Utopian Works of Literature: Exploration of the Evolution of This Genre. It's been around for hundred, you know, more than a hundred years. It's, I guess it was around the time Hunger Came came out that like YA dystopia was a thing. But dystopias and utopias have been a thing since, you know, Voltaire and the Time Machine and uh, e- even to some, you know, there's some ancient Greek works you are talking about. You know, Plato's Republic and the Utopia. The idea of Utopia goes all the way back all the way to the present day, still dystopian works being written now that you might want to understand. Like one that's been popular of late is The Power by Naomi Alderman. It's a dystopian. It falls in the tradition that you can learn about with this course. It talks about Margaret Atwood, Suzanne Collins, H.G. Wells, and all that they've had here. Go sign up for the Great Courses Plus with an exclusive limited time offer. You get a free month and a second month for just 99 cents. That's unlimited learning for two full months for under a dollar. Just sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash bookriot. One month and a second month of 99 cents. Only available for limited time. And only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash riot For less than a buck, get two months to check it out and see what's there at summertime. You know, maybe you're going to have some uh, free time. Maybe if you're a teacher, s- school librarian. Uh, maybe if you're taking a road trip, doing some traveling. Maybe doing some gardening. All the kinds of ways... You can learn stuff while you do something else. That's what's so great about audio. You're probably doing something else right now while you're listening to this. All right. It's our recommendation show. Our, 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 our semi-annual, our, our spring, summer, mom's, dad's, grads, an excuse to give some recommendations out.
1: I think so. Just yeah. a chance to sling some books.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Let's, you want to read the first one?
1: I will. Yes. Our first question is from Andrea. She says, love the podcast, Andrea. Thank you. We love you, too. Uh, She says, second, I'm going to be selfish for this request. And let me say, you are not selfish. We told you to do this.
0: We love this.
1: We support people getting book recommendations Mm. for themselves. Treat yourself you're all good. So she says she's recently read Moon of the Crusted Snow by Wabgeshig Rice, which is a Canadian First Nations apocalyptic story. She was looking for another book about First Nation or Native American peoples with a twist, emphasis on the twist, mm. as I'm not always a fan of just historical fiction. What do you got?
0: Well, both of my recommendations came from, come from a, the, the same um, origin story. I did an episode of, I produced an episode of Recommended. Uh, this was in the first season. Now I'll put a link in the show notes to recommended, where we ask an author to re- recommend a book, and I was interviewing Rebecca Roanhorse, who has written it's now a series of um, their fantasy. Uh, she she's a First Nations author, and the the book itself, Trail Like Lightning, has a young protagonist who's also First Nations, and she is a monster killer, and a town needs a monster killer. And if that's not a good setup for you, I don't know what is. So there's your twist. It's not apocalyptic. It's more my fantasy subgenre. It's, I think it's technically YA fantasy, I think. Um, go look it up. But that one is then she recommended a book, which I then went out and read, called Buckskin by Erica Wirth, which is a novella-length work. I read it on digital, so I'm actually not sure how long it is. It's, it's relatively short, but it's not, it's not fantasy. It's um, contemporary. And it 's set around a um, film festival, I think in arizona it's a it's a, it's a native people 's uh, film festival, and so you've got people who want to be actors and you 've got directors and commerce and partying and music And sort of a slice of life that uses the uh, as a fulcrum this particular film festival so it 's not historical fiction it's putting uh, first nations native people in the present moment and looking at what their life is like and what this particular community is like, and just telling a story that is relatable and specific at all at the same time. So that's Buckskin by Erica Worth, W-R-T-H. Go check those out. All right. Um, right. Jeff, spelled with a G. We're going to call that the alternate spelling, not the wrong spelling. Um, <laughs> short and sweet here. Looking for books where the landscape plays a large role, such as A River Runs Through It, love. Windy River, Big Sky, something like that. Thanks in Advance. Um, why don't you go first for this one?
1: Okay. I, well, my immediate thought for this was Marilyn Robinson. Mm. Um, but then I wrestled with it because Gilead, like that book, all of the Marilyn Robinson books, if they're set anywhere other than where they're set in Iowa, they're not the same book. So the mm. landscape is critical in that way, but the characters don't like live <laughs> right. in the landscape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the way that like a river runs through it, you're living in the landscape. Um so I then decided to get a little more, I don't know, creative. I took a little liberty. Yeah. The first one is Idaho by Emily Ruskovich. Um it is set in a like very, really, really rural the Ruger, Um in a, really, <laughs> in a really, in a very rural. There we go, um, in a very rural and rugged part of Idaho. It's about a married couple, and like this one's. Neither of my recommendations are light, but they're both wonderful. Um, the husband in the couple is affected by. Um, it's. De- I'm not sure if I don't remember if it's Alzheimer's or dementia. He's relatively young, so it's early onset something. Um, he is slowly losing his mind Um, the woman is wrestling with how to care for him they are in a very remote place living there is very difficult and also he has some family secrets that now she is discovering as um as it's clear that the end of his life is not so far away and the the secrets are coming back but this story also would not be the same thing if you put it Anywhere else. And they do really deal with the landscape and deal with the weather and being sort of like out in the middle of nowhere in Idaho. Like that setting feels Mm. very present and important to the story. So I thought of that. And then I got to confess, I started Googling books where landscape matters (laughs) to remind myself Mm. of things because that's like sometimes it's just hard to call these examples up. And one of my Googles t- took me back to A Mercy by Toni Morrison, which is not my favorite Toni Morrison novel, but like even a not the best Toni Morrison novel is better than basically mm-hmm. anything else by anyone else. Um, this is set in the 1680s. Um, it's early in the slave trade. America is also, um, you know, yeah. not in a great place. Uh, and it's about an Anglo-Dutch trader who is uh, he he takes a young slave girl um in as a partial payment for a bad debt from a plantation owner in Maryland. Uh, and I believe maybe part of the story there in Virginia as well. The setting at least felt very familiar to me living in Virginia, but the people are like the the country is still very much wild and wilderness and the people are dealing with life in the wilderness and also the emotional wilderness in many ways. Um, this one's a tough one because you're right there in Toni Morrison land in the heart of the slave trade and dealing with the voices and perspectives of people who were enslaved. Um, but I remember really feeling it pack a powerful punch. It's on the shorter side of Toni Morrison novels and like set sort of on both sides of the Mason Dixon line um, is pretty interesting as well. Uh, so you might want to explore that. It's not going to make you feel good. Like a river runs through. Mm. It, though. <laughs>
0: um. This is I think I mentioned this show I broke my long nonfiction string with this book, The River by Peter Heller, <clears throat> because Peter Heller is a author I really like, and it's about fishing, or at least nominally mm. about fishing. Basically, mm-hmm. a pair of friends goes on a boat paddling, fishing expedition up in the Canadian wilds, and they're, you know, relatively deserted, or not deserted, but sparsely populated, not a lot of the people around, so they're paddling along and they see another couple of people out and it's a couple and they're arguing um pretty pretty heatedly and then later they see just one of the couple paddling back um and so it's a mystery it's an outdoors piece heller himself is an outdoors writer like when he's not writing novels like he wrote the dog stores which i love too it's Mm -hmm. also very well located it's a um dystopian work but it's the Colorado setting is very much present there. So if you like the river or you want to start with um, a dystopian work, a post-apocalyptic work, you could equally do well with the dog stars, but it's a, it's an adventure thrill ride. And for some reason, I thought it was going to be a lot longer. It's only 270 pages and it, it starts a little slow as as you set the setting, but then you just rip through it. It's almost like you're paddling upstream to start and then you turn around and you're going downstream with the book as it goes. Um, It's a a little bit more of an adventure thriller than I thought, um, which I'm not sad about. I was expecting a little more... Ponderousness, I guess, because I was coming from nonfiction fishing books, which are a little bit more. Um, yeah. <laughs> Those are very still, yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, you're just sitting there, standing in a, in a river, waving a stick, essentially. But, um, <laughs> well, that's the title of one of the books I stole that. Um, <laughs> I was like, that's a yeah, it's title. pretty good. Dances with the Trout is another one John Gearack wrote, but anyway, I thought it was great, and um, so if you, it's a little plot, it's a little more plot than something you think about. That's a, a landscape book, like a River and Through It. There's definitely a, a good plot. But the plot is like antecedent almost to the sort of sense of time Mm. and place. Whereas this one, I think the scales are a little bit more even or on the side of plot. It just so happens to be set. And there's some, you know, there's some structural things that are interesting about a thriller where you're out in the middle of nowhere in canoes. Um, So it's a different kind of setting for that. So I'd recommend that one. As well. <clears throat> My voice is going on me. All right. Oh,
1: you know, you could also, speaking of Iowa, hmm. and because we have both just been deep in discussions about um, hmm. Field of Dreams.
0: Yes.
1: Which is based on a novel called Shoeless Joe. Yeah.
0: By W.P. Kinsella. By uh,
1: Kinsella. Iowa figures large there. Is this heaven? Yeah, you might you might go there. a Book about baseball. This and got life. me
0: thinking earlier. Um, we get a question later about someone from Kansas. I'm like, is there a great Kansas novel? I couldn't think of one.
1: Isn't one of the Willa Cather novels in Kansas?
0: Mm, Nebraska.
1: Um,
0: um, not without laughter yeah, only- by Langston Hughes is set in my hometown Lawrence. Though it's thinly veiled fictionally, but it's not well. It's not really in a Cold Kansas- Blood
1: is Kansas, but that's not exactly feel good. Yeah, is it,
0: that it's also. It's also nonfiction. I was more thinking of like a straight mm, up fiction. The great
1: Kansas novel. Yeah, yeah. There,
0: there could be one. Like, again, is the Iowa landscape that much different in Kansas? See, I think if Gilead was in northeastern Kansas, it could be the same book. Mm, that's true. Similar political environment, you know, sort of yeah. left-leaning white Protestant mm-hmm. setting is where it, a similar vibe. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. But I was wondering, like, <laughs> if someone asked me for the great Kansas novel, I have a hard time. That's all I'm saying.
1: Yeah, me too.
0: Go write one. Someone go write one. <laughs>
1: Or email us and remind us of of what we have clearly forgotten. Uh, All right. Let me tell you about our next sponsor before Mm. we keep going our next sponsor this week is william shakespeare's much ado about mean girls by ian (laughs) desher if you're i know it's so great if you are unfamiliar ian desher does these amazing shakespeare pop culture mashups and this one you've got power struggles and bitter rivalries and jealousy and betrayals and star-crossed lovers and when you consider that those are the plot points it is kind of surprising that shakespeare didn't write mean Mm -hmm. girls So now fans can treat themselves to the epic drama and heroic hilarity of the classic teen comedy rendered with the wit, flair, and the iambic pentameter of the bard himself. Our heroine, Caddy, disguises herself to infiltrate the conniving plastics, falls for off-limits Aaron, struggles with her allegiance to newfound friends Damien and Janice, and stirs up age-old vendettas among the factions of her high school. Best-selling author Ian Desher brings his signature Shakespearean wordsmithing to this cult classic, and I think that's just super fun. I love Mean Girls, and I'm into this notion of these mashups, and I think this is going to be the one that I pick up. Mm. Sounds great.
0: All right. Uh, I guess you're doing the next read, right? Okay. Yeah.
1: All right. Our next question is from a listener who we will call N because the person that he Mm -hmm. is seeking a recommendation for might be listening as well. He and his best friend have recently bonded over food writing and Anthony Bourdain in particular, and I think I'm still sad. I'm definitely still sad about Anthony Bourdain. Um, They've recently started reading Kitchen Confidential. She's working her way through Bourdain's books, and our friend N here is looking for a read-alike as a birthday gift says, thanks so much. You stole my first I one, knew I would. But That's okay. why I got to the
0: document first. I needed, all the, I needed <sighs> to pick all the low-hanging fruit. I'm going to, quiet as it's kept here for a minute, mm. I like Bourdain's books, but we're going to recommend some food books throughout the show. And I think I like all of the ones I'm going to recommend better than Bourdain's books. I like Bourdain himself, as a, but as a writer... Like, I don't know. I mean, I know Kitchen Confidential and Medium Raw were super influential. I kind of like what some of these others are doing better than Bourdain. So I, maybe I'm sitting the bar of expectation too high for our friend, um, This the the N. He's like someone who works in a James Bond um, uh, movie. <laughs> but I, I think this is a situation where, for me, I started with some Bourdain, but really have branched out in my food <laughs> r- reading and I hope people who like Bourdain do exactly what N is trying to do here and see what else is out there, because there's a lot yes. of really interesting stuff going on around food. I
1: think the the same thing, that a lot of these that we're going to recommend, and this is a shared wheelhouse mm-hmm. of ours, especially lately. Um, these books exist because of That's the right. ground that Anthony Bourdain broke, mm-hmm. um, but part of being a groundbreaker means that the people who come after you yeah. will innovate and do new things and they might do them a little bit yeah. better um, or at least differently. Like Bourdain was such an original. Mm-hmm. I love him dearly. And as you were saying, like I loved all the work that he did and the things that he stood for. But I think just as books, some of the ones we're going to talk about are
0: better. Yeah, And, and, and maybe first among those um, that we both have recommended or talked mm-hmm. about on the show before Butterf- buttermilk graffiti by Ed Lee in this book. Um, Lee is also a chef and an accomplished one, but he goes to different kind of out-of-the-way American neighborhoods and communities, and as an outsider and as, as an interested observer, writes about these different places, whether, you know, it's an African community in Detroit or, um, you know, all, all over the—or, you know, just finds these really interesting places to go, and each chapter is about them and ends with— I can't remember now, maybe you can help me, Rebecca. Like it's his own spin on something he ate there, or a recipe he kind of came up with inspired by something or yeah. a multiplicity of things he saw. So there's, he's yeah, not just reporting like on the recipe that, that he found. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like he's going he's going to document these locations and write about them and think about them and then be inspired by them. And then each and each chapter ends with a recipe. I have to say too that um, we'll talk about the book that that I recommended to Rebecca recently mm-hmm. that does this as mm-hmm. well as anyone I've done, where there's narrative. Honestly, myself, I don't care about the recipes. <laughs> These books would all be <laughs> fine for me if there were no recipes involved. Your mileage my vary, but Buttermilk Graffiti, it's also a beautiful hardcover. It'd be a wonderful uh. gift. Um, and he's a
1: hell of a writer. Hell of a
0: writer, and you can—he's t- also talks. You can tell he's a reader and a writer because he talks mm-hmm, about books. He's mm-hmm. influenced. It's a very literary one. Bourdain's like this too—a very literary writer because yeah. he's, hes his first book was a novel. Weirdly, yep. um, I think
1: Edward Lee is the heir to the Bourdain yeah. throne here. So
0: that's this was a very obvious recommendation too. Um, the the next my next one is, I think more of in spirit than in tone. Um, Notes of a Young Black Chef by um, Kwame Anuwachi who is, uh, grew up in the Bronx, but then his mom sent him to Nigeria to learn respect, quote-unquote, <laughs> um, and had some trouble. And he started his culinary career working in the culinary services of like an oil spill cleanup ship. So oh, it's wow. harder to imagine a lower rung on the ladder. And, he, and the end of his story is, well, not the end of the story, but the top rung of the ladder we find him in is being one of the chef judges on Top Chef. Um, mm-hmm. So, kind of all the way from the literally a galley kitchen in the middle of the ocean on a really hard scrabble kind of experience to being on television, um, and it's an amazing journey and a wonderful book. Uh, where I think the Bourdain piece here is the the realities of a lot mm-hmm. of um, the hospitality industry and working in kitchen and working as a chef, I thought it was fantastic. It's this book has only been out a couple weeks, so you may not have heard of it. And I hope I hope people will hear about that one.
1: Yeah, that's on my list. I cannot wait to get to that one. Um, So since you took buttermilk uh, graffiti, mine. I'm also I really love this next one. It's called "I Hear She's a Real Bitch" by Jin Ag. Um, She has been called the like, female Anthony Bourdain, which I think is correct in sort of the swagger mm. and the sweariness of her voice. But also, she is her own yeah. thing. She doesn't have to be the female version of some dude. Uh, she's a Canadian chef. She writes about... um You know, that sort of if you've read enough food memoirs or you've read about women being in male dominated industries, there's it's not easy. Mm -hmm. And she writes about trying to innovate in food um, and trying to what it's like to try to be an innovator is just difficult anyway. But when you're one of the few women doing that in an industry that's dominated by men, it's even more difficult. And she is an outspoken and unapologetic feminist, which can also make things more difficult sometimes in the way that people respond to them thus the title. Um, So she writes really, I think just openly, I read this a year or two ago, about the mistakes that she made when she opened her first restaurant when she was very young, um, sort of learning it along the way, um, learning on the spot and on the fly how to be a manager, how to run a business, how to think creatively about food and what she's trying to achieve when she creates a place that people will come together around food. Um, And I just really enjoyed that. It was a perspective that felt really fresh, and I was glad to have it. Um, I also really loved, this is kind of in the pantheon of great food books, Blood, Bones, and Butter by Gabrielle Hamilton, another, like, hardcore, badass lady chef. Um, and she has, the this story has some of those the Bordanian elements of, like, talking about the struggle of being in the kitchen, mm-hmm. and that it's, like, very, the, sort of that visceral, like, your knuckles are going to be burned, and your feet are going to hurt all the time, and, like, no one ever sleeps, but it's awesome, like sort of that rock star mm-hmm. feeling, I think Gabrielle Hamilton like really brings that through, um, and a little bit quieter. But I also really loved it. Was Yes Chef by Marcus Samuelson uh, who owns several restaurants. One is uh, I think it's called Red Rooster in Harlem. Uh, very well-known. And he writes about his family's heritage and how that inspired him to uh, sort of fuse it with American, traditional American cuisine and, and branch out. It's lovely. And he has a wonderful reading voice. That, that one's really mm. wonderful on audio. Um, so
0: cool.
1: those are mine.
0: All right. Um, this next one comes from Grace. My dad is super into mystery series and is trying to read one from every country. Now, this sounds like a project. He's particularly mm-hmm. looking for Brazil, China, Taiwan, Russia, or any sub-Saharan African country. So he's checking off the list. He's got his pushpins in the big map on the wall. It sounds like "Love, I Tana love French this. and Louise Penny as well as the Widows of Malabar Hill. I'd love to get him a new country for Father's Day. Bonus for long series or authors with a long backlist. Well, I'm going to disappoint you on the latter because this is a <laughs> debut thriller. And I, I also say I haven't read it yet, but it's on my list. I've been saving it for the summer. Um, it just came out in February. It's called "American Spy" by Lauren. Wilkinson. And it got on my radar because I just saw a blurb, and it was comparing it to the best of Le Carré, which listeners of the show will know. I've read all the Le Carré. I can get my hands on it. I love Le Carré. I love a certain kind of spy, slow burn, morally ambivalent um, spy thriller. And this is what it is, except this one is set in Burkina Faso, where the protagonist is a, a young black woman who gets recruited to the CIA to sidle up to someone Burkina Faso they want to know more about. Um, So it's Le Carré reset, recast, recontextualized for a different part of the world, a different particular historical moment. And the reviews have been great, and I am so excited to read it. So your dad, fellow dad, your dad and me um, will, (laughs) uh, you know, I'm guessing it sounds like we don't have dissimilar tastes, Um, And so if I'm excited about it, I'm guessing your dad will be excited too, Grace. That's American Spy by Lauren Wilkinson.
1: All right. I had to do a little research Mm. here, and I learned that there are just not a lot of novels, especially um, about Taiwan, published Mm. in English. It's just not... Easy to find. So I'm not surprised that these are some of the places on your dad's list that he's looking for. But I did find you a series. It only has three books, but that is a series. Uh, It's called the Taipei Night Market series by Ed Lin. The first book in it is Ghost Month. And here's the synopsis. Welcome to unknown pleasures a food stand in Taipei's night market named after a joy division album and also the location for a big hearted new mystery set in the often undocumented Taiwan. August is ghost month in Taiwan. It's a time to pay respects to the dead and to avoid unlucky omens. Jingnan, who runs a food stand in the bustling night market is not superstitious, but this August is going to haunt him. He learns that his high school sweetheart has been murdered and, um, Let's see. She's found scantily clad near a highway where she was selling beetle nuts. Beetle nut beauties are typically women in desperate circumstances, but she was the high school valedictorian. And the last time that Jing Nan spoke to her, she was far away. She was happily enrolled in NYU's honor program and things do not add up. Her parents don't think so either, but the police have closed the case without asking any questions. Um, so Jing Nan sets out to investigate himself. And nothing prepares him for what he is about to learn, or how it will change his life. Mm. So there cool. you go, mystery set in Taiwan. That was a fun project. Um, this is such a like great dad project. It's great trying to read a mystery, dad project. I'm going to start right now.
0: Country. I'm going to read a <laughs> fishing so book from every country in the world.
1: <laughs> oh, Jeff, I love this.
0: <laughs> fish everywhere, right?
1: <laughs> there are fish everywhere. Yeah, it's true. All right. Our next question. Uh, There's a three parter and I was into like basically all three parts of these, but I'm going to take this first part. This is from Jim. Uh, The first part, he says he's graduating in May with a BS in chemistry but currently questioning all of my decisions as it took me too long to realize i do not want a chem- career in chemistry i've dipped my toe into the world of teaching and i think i may enjoy it but i'm not sure some days i feel like i should ditch everything and become a musician or a writer so really anything is on the table my first recommendation recommendation request is about how the f to decide what to do with your life when you've well and truly lost your way anything to help navigate this quarter life crisis would be much appreciated uh, also so Jim prefers nonfiction or audio. Jim, step into my wheelhouse.
0: <laughs> Jim, first of all, <laughs> you can't have lost your way when you're 22.
1: It's true. You don't have a way yet. No.
0: So if that makes you feel any better, um, both Rebecca and I can attest to we had no idea at 22. I dropped
1: out of a PhD program at 23.
0: Well, and <laughs> look, I'm not where I thought I would be at 22. It's all right. So it is I appreciate, okay. you're th- be I appreciate okay. this. Um, it's too early. I, it is a quarter life crisis, but the crisis is too strong. Um, it's going to be gonna all say, right.
1: I think that one, it's really brave and bold to admit yes. that you have gone, you've done the work and you've gotten a degree and this turns out to be the thing that you don't want to do. Acknowledging that out loud is the thing that's going to make the rest of your life better. Right.
0: <laughs> Keep doing that when it happens.
1: Keep doing that. Keep doing it. And yes. I can
0: also imagine that being in a hard science like chemistry, there is a certain, um, endowment effect, especially in the sciences, that if you're not going to do this, it feels like, you know, if I'm going to be a musician, a step down or a step out or a deviation. But it's, I think it I, I echo Rebecca Simmons, it's brave, but there's a lot of time left and you don't oh, know yeah. what's going to happen. But in both of my recommendations, I only realize I wrote down two, acknowledge that you're not going to know what's going to happen. Um, the first one I just finished recently, I've had it on my shelf forever. It's called How We Measure Life by Clayton Christensen best known for um, his famous business w- book called The Innovator's Dilemma. But he's been a Harvard business professor for a while, and his own life story turned out a little bit differently than he anticipated. And the impetus for the book was he was at, I think, a 20-year Harvard Business School reunion, and he was looking around. And, you know, these are people who would, they graduate from Harvard Business School. So you get to that point, you are b- you're both talented, you're lucky, you're privileged, or all three at the same time. You're set up to do amazing kinds of things, but he saw. he's looking around like not as many of these people are happy as you would think based on the opportunities afforded them at that particular moment. And so he sort of goes around and he starts to think about what's the people that are happy versus those that aren't. And he suggests working backwards, like when it's all said and done, whatever the time that is, I hope it's not for a long time for any of us, what will you would like to people say about what your life was about? And then how do you make decisions all along the way to help you get there? Mm. Mm-hmm. Which I think is really interesting because it might not be about um, making music, say. It might be I wanted to make other people happy or I wanted to put something new into the world or I wanted to be secure and have uh, a family situation and really be a family person or I wanted to work and make sure that, that my world, my work helped people who were um, disadvantaged help them out. You know, kind of evacuate it from specifics but thinking of it from a more of a – a qualitative kind of position, but he talks about a lot of different things. Like I thought one that was especially, you could tell it's pitched at kids who kids, people coming out of school, especially like a Harvard business school where they have a lot of opportunities. Cause one of the chapters is like how not to go to jail. Like, <laughs> no, and in serious. It's, it's really about like, you know, how is it these people with all these opportunities, a lot of them end up in jail or end up, you know, mm-hmm. being involved, uh, investigated for security fraud or something like that. And one of the things is, you know, it's a slippery slope kind of argument. You do it once, and you take the easy way, or you, do, you think people aren't going to find out. But then how do you live? You, you think about every action as something that you could stand behind, um, even if you don't end up to go to jail. But if it was something that other people found out about, would you feel good about it? And now, you're not going to bat a 1,000. You know, we all have things we wish we had done differently. Um, but thinking about it and from those kinds of points of view is really interesting. And my other recommendation, I think, Rebecca, you've read too, um, is That So Good you can't, They Can't Ignore You by Cal yes, Newport. Yes, that was on my list. Oh, it's too. on your mm-hmm. list. Okay, I, w- I won't step on yours then. Um, but I thought that was fascinating, just maybe maybe since it says a bonus. Oh, yours bonus is chemistry, by what can Maybe I'll bridge <laughs> to you. For, the thing that got me thinking about So Good They Can't Ignore You is it's more generally applicable to anything you might do. Like it's not about f- that sometimes what you want to do and what you like doing is what you're good at doing, and there's a chicken and the egg problem. Because in order to spend a lot of time doing something and getting good at it, you sort of have to like it. But sometimes, if, you, if it's something you want to get good at, you can sort of like trick yourself and say, I'm just going to have to do this for a long time and get good at it. Um, but in terms of thinking about quality of work, your life work, how you enjoy what you do... It's the inverse of the um, find what you're passionate about and you'll never work a day of your life. This one is, well, that's because generally what you're passionate about is something you spend a lot of time doing you got good at it. But the thing that makes you happy is doing something you're good at and using it in an, in an ideal direction, to quote the Nobel <laughs> language, like using it for to, to, to be competent um, and to actualize your talents and aspirations. So I think those two together... Are a kind of interesting duo for where you are in your life. Tell me, about is that why you picked so good? They can't yeah, ignore yeah, you. we going to say I something. I was thinking
1: else. too. Like I think. Um and that's what I was thinking about as well when I put So Good They Can't Ignore You on my list. I found it very liberating yeah. when I read it. And I wished that I had read it earlier in life Same. because I think the messaging to like young people is so idealistic. Find mm. the thing that you love and then find a way to do it. Or that whole BS about if you do the work you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Like, I love my job, but it's a job. You know, like work <laughs> is work and... Pretending that work is anything other than work isn't helpful to anybody, but Newport writes about like studies that have looked at like what makes people satisfied in their jobs and you find people who have jobs that like no one is sitting around when they're 10 dreaming about like being the office manager no. at an insurance company right. but like someone who's done that job for 15 years and has mastered it and feels competent and capable and of use and of service to their coworkers, like they have a really high level of satisfaction with their mm. job they love what they do because of those exact factors it feels really good to be good at something this is not to say stick with chemistry and get good at it and that will make you happy no. like you know if you know you're not going to be happy like i'll say like dropping out of grad school was the scariest thing that i have ever done and 13 years later it was also the best thing that i've ever done um so like it, you're just probably going to feel weird and be scared for a while and it might feel like you're going to screw it all up but you're not you're going to be okay um my first pick sort of dovetails in with the idea of So Good They Can't Ignore You. It's called The Power of Meaning by Emily Eshfahani-Smith. And it's more social science than self-help, but also liberating in the way of she looks at like what makes us feel good about life. And it's not happiness, it's meaningfulness. So if you can think about the things that make your life feel fulfilling and satisfying and meaningful um, and go in that direction with your work, um, that might be that's a useful way to think mm. about it. Like chasing after happiness, I think is tough. That puts you on a that's a rough treadmill to be stuck on. Um, and the science actually says this is not the thing to chase after. Most people's baseline levels of happiness are pretty set. They're like a great thing happens, you get a little happier for a while, and then you mm-hmm. return to your to whatever your personal baseline is. But that meaningfulness is like that's a needle you can move. Um, so you might think about that. Um, this is definitely a time in your life to get some Brene Brown. <sighs> <laughs> I'm surprised we made it this far into a recommendation mm-hmm. show without me talking about brene Brown I think you need some daring greatly Jim um some there's real courage already in what you're acknowledging and she talks about how fear and courage are things that we experience at the same time it's not that brave people are never afraid um about vulnerability being the combination of risk uncertainty and emotional exposure you got all that going on here and about how to sort of live in to and live through those moments and come out stronger on the other side. And that's also a book that I wish that I had read when I was dropping out of grad school. Um, And as a bonus, just because it lines up so nicely. Chemistry is a novel by Wakey Wang about a young woman who is getting a doctorate in chemistry and discovering that she does not want to Mm -hmm. be a chemist and also that she doesn't want to marry the man that she has said she's supposed to marry, but she has all these family expectations and commitments and she's invested all this time. And what is she supposed to do? And I think that might make you feel very seen. Mm
0: -hmm. Second, wheelhouse is completely built around books with magic in the modern slash realistic world. As well as mythology, fairy tale retellings, anything in the vein of all things Rick Riordan, Harry Potter, magicians, Bone Season, Song of Achilles, or the Lunar Chronicles. Bonus points if it has queer representation. More mature perspective on these genres as well, as most of what I've read in the genre is YA, which is not bad, just want something a little different. Um, let's ring the Night Circus bell. Where is oh, it? Yes. I've got it here somewhere. Dang. Yeah, there it is. Thank I feel you.
1: Like, wait, I feel like the night circus bell should be more magical. Don't nah, like I don't
0: shine. know. We're, we, we don't have a live soundboard here. Tinkle. Um, <laughs> it's not modern, but it is a real. I mean, it's set in the realistic world. In the Cirque de Rev, which is the titular night circus, is kind of its pocket magic universe that exists within the world as we know it. Um, it's about a duel between two magicians that's that is, that is um, fought by proxies that they train, and um, well. I'm not going to say any more about it as you know it's just if you've listened to the show for a while you know it's a standing recommendation and get the to the night circus too I'm also going to recommend the darker shade of the dar- a darker shade of magic series by ve Schwab and it's not exactly realistic what's weird is like so in this world there are three Londons in sort of alternate but parallel existences and each one ranges like on one end there's it's a very magical world and on the other end though I think it's Dark London or Black London, I can't remember. It's mostly the London we would recognize, and there's an an interstitial London between them. And the story moves between them, and it's over the course of three books, and the books are long. What some people like about fantasy really get immersed in it. But I really, really like these books, and a lot of people I know who've read them like them too. Um, So go check those out. Those are my two picks.
1: All right. I... Came to Helen or yep. me.
0: good, smart. Um,
1: and this is sort of modern fairy tale retellings with a twist. Um, Boy, Snowbird is a modern take on Snow White that also deals with issues of race and beauty. Gingerbread is the newest one, and it pulls together, sort of draws on the importance of gingerbread in children's stories mm-hmm. and in fairy tale retellings. I'm sure you can think of a few notable ones. Um, and then Mr. Fox is a retelling of the Bluebeard legend and he- and there's a, maybe a couple others in her yeah. in in the helen Oyeyemi oeuvre that are also fairy tale retellings or that sort of fit in this you should basically just look at her entire list um i'm not sure about queer rep i feel like there might be in one of the books i don't um, remember but she takes on really big contemporary issues um, and puts them through the lens of both fairy tale and magic realism but also but like grounded in reality too boy snowbird does that really nicely i think um i have not read gingerbread it's been a long time since i read mr fox but Helenoia yemi was the first one that i thought of here especially ringing the bell of more mature perspective on something like a fairy tale um she's really going there there's a lot of depth and i don't think anybody else is really doing what what she's doing Um so i would check those out The third in Jim's requests, is for his mom Mm. for Mother's Day. She is a relatively slow reader, so she needs a book that's going to grab her attention, get her in there. She reads a lot of mysteries, enjoyed the Robert Galbraith series. She's read popular mystery and thrillers like Gone Girl but thought they were just okay. Her favorite series has been Janet Ivanovich's Stephanie Plum. He says basically mystery Mm. with a mix of comedy would be best.
0: Okay. Um, I don't, I don't know if there's a name to the series. I've read two of them. I don't know if the, the larger series is named. So it's a study in Scarlet by Sherry Thomas is the first one where, she takes, you know, as as others have done, the Sherlock Holmes Watson dynamic and remapped it onto something else. In this case, it's two um, women in Victorian England. Victorian England. Ooh, I'm not sure. I can't remember. In
1: England. Yeah, in historical fiction. Days. It's a, it's an
0: older it's an older England, uh, um, and. Sherlock Holmes is using a pseudonym and pretending. We're not really pretending, more of like a that Sherlock Holmes is a persona that no one really knows because as a woman, she can't really be a detective or work with the police. And so there's an additional layer of complication identity play that's really fun. And um, the second one was, I think, A Scandal in Belgravia. I didn't look it up, but I enjoyed them both a great deal. Um, So those are my recommendations, too. I don't have a lot of experience in more like... um, I think the Janet Ivanovich... And Stephanie Plum's; those are more or the, the Stephanie Plum. That's more of a mass market mystery kind of thriller. I, I know less about that, so I don't know if it maps onto that. But this mm-hmm. is enjoyable. Um, the historical setting is good, and it's a it's a good fast paced read. So that's as close as I can get to. I'm afraid.
1: Yeah, this is not something I read a lot of. So mm-hmm. I went to Jamie Cannavese, who is one of our in-house mystery thriller mm-hmm. experts, and she uh, said to point you in the direction of the Veronica Speedwell series by Deanna Rayborn. It's historical mystery, but just as hilarious as Stephanie Plum. So good. fare thee well, Jim. Thank you for listening for all of these years. Good luck yep. on your journeys.
0: All right. another rec- Another sponsor. Look, mm-hmm. we've recommended a bunch of books. You might, maybe if you, these weren't one of your questions, you're interested. Even something you maybe weren't interested in before, but because we are so dynamic and charismatic and articulate, <laughs> you yourself are interested in checking one of these out. And one place you could, that's a safe place to do that, Kindle Unlimited. Because you know what? They've got over a million books to choose from. With more than 5,000 audiobooks and 1 million ebooks at your fingertips, you can easily switch between reading and listening to a variety of titles that interest you. So, said before, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Included, Mary Poppins included, 1984 included. And you don't even need a Kindle device to use this. You can read on your phone, tablet, PC, or e-reader with the Kindle app. There's a rotating selection of current issues from popular magazines as well. Books switch out. They add stuff and remove stuff all the time to keep certain amount of it fresh. And then there's some that they're all the time. So here's that's really interesting thing to look at. They've got a whole list of titles. I'm going to pick a couple... So one thing you can do for sure is if there's something you missed, you want to go pick it up. Like, maybe you never got to The Hobbit. You know, it's there. Maybe you never got to The Handmaid's Tale. It's there. Those are two you might get away with, or not get away with, you might pick up right now. Hunger Games, we talked about Great Courses Plus. Maybe you always want to read The Hunger Games, but you also want to learn something about it. You could do Kindle Limited and The Great Courses Plus right Now, you know, one that I really thought was interesting that's on here, they have some nonfiction. As you you guys know, I'm I'm looking at some nonfiction. And I don't always know if a nonfiction book is going to be a great fit for me. So especially since I like audio, I like to sample. But there's one here that I've been circling around for a long time that I'm going to pick up called Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think about how big data is being used. Also for you uh, language nerds, this is one I, I highlighted too, Divided by a Common Language, A Guide to British and American English, which is also a beautiful title, but like, looking how British and American English are different. So what if you wanted to try this? What, what can I offer you? Well, here's what, I can, here's what I can help you out with. For a limited time, get two months of Kindle Unlimited for just $0.99. Cents. 99 this, is a, this is a popular kind of deal. Two months for $0.99 cents by visiting Amazon.com slash Kindle Book Riot. That's Amazon.com slash Kindle Book Riot. Two months of Kindle Unlimited for only 99 cents. Go forth and sample. Uh where are we? Who's who's reading? You why don't you read? I, I don't guess? remember. I'll yeah. read.
1: We're back into the realm of food books. This is Emily. Recommendations for great food writing. She loved buttermilk graffiti. Great job, Emily. Cork Dork, also a good one. Alone in the Kitchen with an eggplant and currently working my way through Save Me the Plums. It's my current reading mania, and I'd love to discover some more titles. You know, in answering this one, I was thinking not just about what did we not recommend mm. already in the Bourdain question, <laughs> but like though these writers relationships to food is a little, like Mm. seems a little bit different. The writers that she's reading than Bourdain's um, relationship to food or like the chef memoir is a different animal from the food memoir, Mm -hmm. I think, or, or there, there is some Venn diagram there, but they're not the same thing. Um, so my first pick is the taste of country cooking by Edna Lewis. There is a beautiful 30th anniversary edition just out, um, in hardcover of this, um, I would never have come across this book, I don't think, and I think that's a complete travesty, if not for a blog post by Samin Nosrat that Mm. I read recently about her favorite food writing. Edna Lewis is a um, black woman from Virginia, and the book is divided into seasons. Again, it's 30 years old, so you also get some perspective on age and her family's history her i believe great-grandparents she writes about were slaves um and as the book is divided into seasons she has a beautiful couple of pages of introduction about like sort of all the sense memories attached to the season and the foods that they would cook in the particular season because they're just cooking straight from the land Um, and then several recipes for how to cook those things it is lovely um just really, really lovely. The new edition has a foreword by Alice Waters that provides some context and perspective. Like, this is not a food book that is about the personality of the writer. It's very much a celebration of like everyday food for everyday people um, from a, a part of American culture that has really, really rich food history, but that is not discussed um, or placed on a pedestal in the way that other like French cooking gets a lot of attention being you know fancy gets a lot of attention the origins of so much of Americans food culture comes from foods that slaves were cooking foods that black people were cooking um, in the kitchens of the white people who employed them and Edna Lewis sort of taps into all of that I really loved it Um, if you are enjoying Save Me the Plums by Ruth Reichel I think the best in the Ruth Reichel S- section of books, um, oeuvre, cause I'm going to say that again, is tender at the bone, which is her first one about her childhood growing up, how she came to love food. Just go there. It's wonderful. One of the first food books I read and it really turned me onto the genre. Uh, and then Kate Christensen, who is a, like a mystery thriller writer has two wonderful books about food. One is called blue plate special. And the other is called how to cook a moose. Um, I think the recipe writing in blue plate special is better. Um, but how to cook a moose has a lot about her relationship with her partner and what it's like to cook with someone that you love. Um, and I really, really loved that. So those are mine.
0: Um, my pick is one I just re- recommend to Rebecca and she's screenshotting texts, ver- <laughs> texting me screenshot, <laughs> you know, physical screenshots of the book. Cause I was asking about something, a recipe that's in there. I, I think this is, I think this is my favorite food book I've read, uh, so far. That's, that's high praise. Um, my experience of it was remarkable. I did it on audio, and it does everything I want a book like this to do, what I'm looking for. I actually was looking for a read-alikes in our own contributor slack and didn't really get exactly this, I think, because it's singular in its own way. It's called The Greatest Cook in the World by Rick Bragg, and the, great, the titular greatest cook in the world is his mom, who, of course, he's biased, but it's a biography of her and her life, and a biography is his relationship to her told through her cooking, and how she cooked, and why she cooked, under what conditions she cooked. Um, he clearly loves his mom's cooking, but the cooking becomes the centerpiece of thinking about her life, their relationship, his own relationship to his experience. He's he went on. He left the sort of um, I think, and I've never forgotten that it, it's like mid-Atlantic or sort of. Narrow, the shallow South, as we might say, um, mm-hmm. not the deep South, but he's gone on to become, you know, and he wrote for, um, big time, uh, Northern newspapers and magazines sort of separate from that life where he grew up. Um, always felt both of it and apart from it at the same time. And by writing about his mom and her cooking and providing some of her recipes and getting her input about providing the recipes, it's warm, it's thoughtful, it's moving, it's beautiful. It's mouthwatering. It's all at the same time. Uh, I really loved it. I'm going to be chasing that experience for a long time, I think.
1: It's a good one.
0: You're just into it. Was I wrong? How wrong was I? Was I right? What do you feel? Where am I doing here? I'm
1: only 100 pages into it. I love it. Mm. I don't know if it's going to be my all-time favorite. I've read so much food yeah, writing. Yeah, you got, you got more um, data, so
0: it's harder to get yeah, to. Yeah, but I,
1: I love it. It's I will say the first like three pages of the book are some of the best food writing and just some of the best writing yeah. period I've read in a long time. Um, I was on the phone with a friend earlier this week and was telling him about it, and I was like, you know, just... Oh, hang on for a second. I'm just going to read this to you. <laughs> like, this is, you thought you were just FaceTiming to hang out, but the thing that's happening now is I'm reading you Rick Bragg. Yeah. Um, I made Bob listen to me read it. Like, anyone who will sit still for five minutes, I will read you the first three pages. <laughs> Of this book. It is wonderful. Uh, and so, like, I feel like the book about your mama is such a wonderful mm-hmm. southern thing anyway. Like, his love for his mom comes through. The like connection that the family has around food is wonderful. And she's such a character. This family is so full of characters. Yeah. Um,
0: it's great. Well, you know, and you could argue that it's not actually a food book.
1: I think it's I not think actually
0: so. a food I think so. I mean, book. it is and it isn't. It's about his mother's cooking but it's specific and narrow that 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 comes out of that to be about food. Like food is the thing that that's talking about. But mm-hmm. re, it's not reminding, you know, the title is telling you, it's not about the, its greatest food in the world. It's the greatest cook in the world. So it's really about her. And I think that's one thing that the differentiate is like Rick Braddock is a writer coming to food rather than a food p- person or a chef coming to writing. And sometimes yeah. you can feel that in like, the prose, but also the worldview. He doesn't, know, he doesn't know what Ed Lee knows about food. He doesn't know what Gabriel Hamilton knows about food. Uh, but he knows language in a way they, they don't, or at least that's not native to their own identity and profession. But he doesn't know as much about food. He's not trying to put his mom's food in context, right? Like Ed right. Lee is trying to do, because he just doesn't have that experience, not really his interest. So it's, a, it's by definition narrower, but the prose really... Is is stand out. Um, the cooking gene is my other. I'm I'm 50 pages into this, which is really interesting, mm-hmm. by Michael Twitty, and he is from I believe Maryland. And the idea of the book is to go back to the South as a black chef, and look at the South as a cultural, anthropological, and culinary homeland, um, and treat it as such. So you can even the title, the cooking gene, is both like it's it's about race and biology, but also about practice and how. Tied up, those two things are, especially for black people, and even if they don't live in the South, that the South is sort of the, the homeland, even though it's not the homeland, if you, if from, you know, it's, it's, it's Africa, is it the South, but centering the South as its own foodscape um, and culturescape that is the origin, even if it's not the originator of a certain kind of black identity and black practice. Um, really fascinating so far. Um, highly recommend that.
1: Who cool. Okay. Speaking of books and Kansas and settings. There you go. Our question is from Rihanna. She's looking for books set in the US that are very detailed in their settings. She lives in Kansas and has gotten to see many places haven't gotten to see many places. Would love to get into a book that is set in some of those very large cities that I might not be able to see in the near future. New York, LA, Seattle. Uh, she says I've only been to a few states, Arizona, Texas, New Orleans is one of the large cities she's been to, but excluding, you know, Kansas City and Wichita. Um, she loved The Rook, she usually sticks to YA, and is looking for own voices novels, and LGBTQ is a plus.
0: My pick is not a big city, but it's very located in the city, so I'm sorry uh, about that. Um, I just couldn't help but recommend That's Aristotle so and Dante Discovered the Secrets of the Universe by Benjamin uh, Sainz, do you know, is that right? I looked it up, I was trying to find, I think <clears throat> Sainz is right, S-A-E-N-S, yes. um, and it's a love story. Um, about two young men, teenagers, in El Paso. And it's very much like El Paso is a big figure in the book. That's why I'm recommending mm-hmm. it here, because it's you get a sense of a different place. And it's not a huge place. It's a place you've heard about, um, probably. It's a border community. Um, and I thought the book was just so lovely and beautiful. I actually came to it second after the inexplicable logic of my life also um, by Benjamin Sayans, which I loved as well. But I felt like the sense of place in Aristotle and Dante Discovered the Secret of the Universe um, was stronger. The other bonus you get if you're an audiobook person with this, do you know where I'm going with this, Rebecca?
1: No, I don't. Lin
0: Manuel Miranda does huh. the audiobook. And it was, I think well. he did it before he was the Hamilton. I think it was, you know, mm-hmm. it was earlier. So I'm not sure he does this anymore. So it's kind of like. Um, it's kind of like that, that shock of recognition you see, like seeing an early like commercial that a, a famous actor did at the beginning. It's like, whoa, whoa, I didn't expect to see this here. Um, but I read this in, in, um, in digital, but I've heard that Miranda's narration is wonderful, which would come as no surprise. Yeah, not a surprise. I think story. I didn't know that when I came to the book. And I, in hindsight, I would have chosen to, to hear that. And maybe in the fullness of time, I will. But that's Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe by Benjamin Sayens.
1: All right. I had a couple for this, um, staying in the YA world as well. Somewhere we, somewhere only we know by Maureen Gu. It's actually not out yet. It comes out May 7th. I just read it for all the books, but put it on your list. It's set in Hong Kong and it's a 24 hour caper of a novel, um, that takes you all over the city. So you'll like really get to learn about a place that you haven't visited and that might be kind of far off for you. It's about a K-pop star who like has one wild night with a young guy that she has met. And by wild night, I mean like she has a very controlled life and she like sort of breaks Mm. past her. She sneaks past her security guard. She's just going out to get a burger. Um, But she meets this guy. They sort of fall for each other over the course of 24 hours and he takes her on this whirlwind. Around the city. Um, It's really wonderful and fun. Uh, The Summer of Jordi Perez by Amy Spaulding is set in LA and it is about a young girl. I can't remember the main character's name, I should have Googled it, but she. works she wants she's gotten a summer internship at a fashion boutique this has been her dream Um, it turns out that instead of only one intern which is what this boutique sort of famously always does there are two interns this summer the other girl is named Jordi Perez and our main character is both intimidated by and totally like just head over heels crushy on Jordi Perez but she's never dated a girl before she's actually never dated anyone before she doesn't know what she's doing and it's all very exciting and scary and so of course she and jordi Perez fall for each other um so you get a wonderful coming of age lgbtq love story um there's like all that great sort of swoony butterflies Mm. in the stomach stuff of them going on their first date and having their first fight and figuring out like all the young love stuff and um the main character is helping a friend of hers go on this quest to like try all the burgers in LA so you also get like little tidbits but I felt like you don't see a whole lot of LA in the book but it the book feels very mm-hmm. LA like you will get the feeling um, of the city and the culture I think from the way that the characters are presented and the places that they go and um and that was a one sitting like Saturday afternoon read for me last summer it's really great so that's the summer of Jordi Perez by Amy Spaulding
0: um, All Jeff, right. I, we're, we got a lot more to go. Should yeah, we? <laughs> hmm.
1: Do you want to make it a two parter?
0: Well, we could wrap up some of the ones that came in late. We're at an hour.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's do
0: it. Let's make it a two parter.
1: Yeah. And I just remembered I'm going to be on vacation next week. So we should figure out who's going to sit in for me. And then we'll,
0: you know what, we'll do this up in two we'll weeks. We'll do news we- next week. Yeah. And then more recommendations. So you could still email us. I can't promise. I haven't looked at how many are left. But if you want to at least take your shot, um, you could still email us. Thank you guys so much for writing in. Um, I was just I was just gearing up for our next one. There's some other there's other books we need to wreck here. We, we can't be done yeah. with this yet. You're totally right. No. Uh, as always, you can find show notes um, at bookriot.com slash listen You can email us podcast at bookriot.com. I got a lot of great feedback about rewards programs. from other companies. And the the meta story is they all blow. They all are terrible (laughs) because they, you got to do the thing we talked about. You got to take a picture of the thing and upload it to the thing. And like, who who has the time? And the rewards aren't juicy enough um, to really get you to do it over. So I think, I think there's a anti-pattern here that maybe some of these companies are, are tapping into, which is you might do enough to sign up, And they get all the information they want from you when you sign up. But if you don't keep using it, so what? They already got the information they want from you by just like filling out the thing, which I don't love. But heard from Clinique, Cat Litter. uh, There was a whole bunch of other ones that. That's
1: already some range. Yeah,
0: right. (laughs) Consumables make sense, I guess. You know, you you can use makeup over time, you're going to use Cat Litter over time. Um, Probably your vacuum cleaner. You don't need a rewards program for Dyson. You're only going to buy so many vacuum cleaners in your life, uh, hopefully. So that that was good follow-up. We probably won't get to it, but I want to acknowledge that a lot of people wrote in and told us, like, yeah, I've used this, I've used this, I've used this, and like 90% of the feedback was, and then I stopped using it because it's a pain in the tuchus uh, to, to do it. But anyway, thanks for that. More recommendations in two weeks. Until then, thanks, Rebecca.
1: Have a good one.